When you begin reading in the book of Genesis, about chapter 16, you run across a situation um, <clears throat> that kind of follows itself throughout the scriptures. Uh, our topic this morning will begin really in Genesis 26, but just sort of by way of uh, information or introduction, when uh, Hagar uh, was found that she was despised in the eyes of Sarah, her handmaid or her owner, Hagar fled from Sarah and Abraham and found herself perched by a well. And in the difficulties that she had, the Lord, uh, the angel of the Lord came and spoke to her by that well and refreshed her. Uh, then as you read through the Gospels or read through the Bible, you'll eventually come to a passage in John chapter 4 where uh, the woman of Samaria comes to a place called Jacob's Well to gather her water for that day, a very important task at their time. And seated upon that well is the Lord Jesus Christ and gives to her some great and encouraging words. Um, we understand, though, that wells... Uh, are not self-sufficient. Wells just actually give us access to underground streams of water. Those underground streams of water come from rivers and lakes in this world, and the rivers and lakes get their water from the heavens above, but God himself is the actual giver of all of this. So actually, as you trace uh, the presence of wells and springing water and things like this than the other, you'll eventually read through the Bible and find yourself in Revelation 22 when John says that I saw this river of water flowing from the throne of God. It tells you that this is the beginning, this is the start, this is the point where it all comes from. I realize that we sing a hymn, Shall We Gather by the, by the River, the Beautiful, the Beautiful, the River that Flows by the Throne of God. That's actually biblically incorrect. The wells or the waters that we drink of don't flow by the throne of God. They flow from the throne of God. What we have in this life as a blessing does not come by God. It comes from God. Well, being Abraham, being Isaac, being in these dry and uh, barren and uh, drought-stricken lands... Wells are actually quite important. They're not just, hey, let's have a well in the backyard so we don't have to pay for water to come from the government. They're a source of life in and of itself. And being in these barren lands, being in these drought-stricken lands, uh, uh, a well of water is, or a well is more about water. It's not, not as much about water as it is a symbol of a thriving community. But you'll find out as you read a lot in the Bible that when a, a well was dug and water was discovered, it wasn't long before a city or a town was made in that spot. Reality is, is that even though it's a symbol of a thriving community, however, there are people in this world who not, do not want to see communities to survive and thrive. Genesis 26 is where we would like to begin this morning. <clears throat> In Genesis 26, we want to speak to you this morning on Isaac the well digger. This is a wonderful chapter. Uh, I think it contains a lot of things that uh, I found important and beneficial. Uh, I can only hope and pray that what I would say this morning would be blessed of the Lord 
I can only hope and pray uh, that what I have to say this morning would be beneficial to you, uh, instructing and enlightening. Uh, it is not my intent to read this entire chapter, uh, but for the sake of maybe brevity, I'd like to give you a possible outline for Genesis chapter 6. Uh, there's three things that you will notice about this. Certainly there's more things than, than this, but there are at least three things that you will notice as you read through this chapter, which I'm sure that you will when we get done today. Isaac is blessed of God. The second thing that you will notice is that Isaac has many obstacles that he has to encounter in life. And the third thing that you will notice is that Isaac is a man of perseverance. That despite his obstacles, he continues on doing what is right, blessed of God. Isaac being blessed of God, number one is he has a covenant God. And the Bible tells us here that when God speaks to him, he says, uh, I will bless thee. I will bless thee because of Abraham's sake, actually. I will fulfill my covenant with thee because of Abraham. In thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So not only does Isaac have a great covenant God here, but Isaac has a faithful father. He's a faithful father and a godly heritage to look back on. Uh, Isaac has, uh, in this time, fields of plenty in a time of famine. Chapter uh, uh, 26, verse 1 says, There was a famine in the land, beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And then it tells us in uh, verse 12 that Isaac sowed in that land and received in the same year an hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. Uh, I don't know much about farming. I'm a city guy. I only know what people tell me. But I do know this, that if you are a hundredfold farmer, that is spectacular. It is almost miraculous and magnificent. Abraham has diligent servants who help him and not hinder him. And we all have to admit that we have tasks and chores in life that we have to perform. And it's so much better to have people helping us than it is hindering us in our daily life. Uh, the next thing you'll notice here is that, a, uh, that uh, Isaac has many obstacles that he has to deal with as you read through this. The very first thing that Isaac has to deal with is that Isaac comes from a dysfunctional family. Big surprise, right? But you know, to a lot of people, that is a surprise. A lot of people are surprised their families are so dysfunctional. But the one thing that you'll notice about Isaac is, is that Isaac commits the same sins his father commits. Isaac commits the same sins his father commits in the same land under the same king. You know, remember Abraham went down uh, one time and he told Abimelech, uh, Sarah's my sister. Because if they find out she's my wife, she'll kill me to get my wife. So lest I have to die for her, I'm going to lie about her. Good job, husbands. Good job, Abraham. Uh, Isaac is in the same land under the same king, tells the king the same story. And you've got to think that Abimelech, when he figures out what has happened, is he's sitting on his throne saying, 
Golly, not these people again. I thought I already dealt with this. A thought I had about this. Past sins out of unfaithfulness. Abraham was unfaithful. Past sins out of unfaithfulness are no excuse for present sins out of willful disregard for past failures. Isaac's got enough sense to look back and see that didn't work for them. We have a current generation now who says socialism didn't work for them because they didn't do it our way. We're going to do it different. No, you're going to do the same thing and you're going to fail the same way. That's exactly what happens. When Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun, he meant that. When we look out in the world around us, there's nothing new happening. It's the same thing rehashed and redone and reoccurring over and over and over. Um, Isaac comes from a dysfunctional family from the fact that he commits the same sins as his father does. If you will notice the very uh, last two verses of Genesis 26, uh, it says in Esau. I thought, that, I thought this was very interesting. Um, when you read through the Bible, there's... Uh, about 11 or 12 chapters dedicated to Abraham. There's about 11 or 12 chapters that are dedicated to Joseph. There's like a chapter and a half dedicated to Isaac. Almost like he's unimportant. And yet he was the promised seed of Abraham. And yet this chapter outlines uh, how he dealt with Philistines, how he dealt with the men of Gerar, and then right here at the end of the chapter, just out of the blue, we got Esau, one of Isaac's sons. It says, and Esau was 40 years old when he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Beri the Hittite, and Bashamath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, which were a grief of mine unto Isaac and to Rebekah. There, there's not any... There's not any more weighty matter in a man's life than the health of his children. The whole world can be crumbling around him. But when he looks at his children and he sees joy and happiness, well, as a matter of fact, 3 John chapter 1, verse 4 says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children Walk in the truth. Uh, there can be no greater weight that is applied to an individual than to see their children and their family just disintegrating before them. Isaac has that. Isaac has that conflict, that problem, that dysfunction that has plagued so many people for so long. Uh, the second conflict or the second uh, obstacle, so to speak, is that he is envied by the Philistines. Uh, when in this land of famine, in this land of droughts, when Isaac is producing a hundredfold, you're going to create some enemies in life. Uh, everybody hates the rich until they are the rich. Everybody hates the winning team until they are the winning team. Everybody hates God's blessing when they're not getting it. 
So not only are we envied by the Philistines in this, but then the men of Gerar just come up. And uh, by being envied by the Philistines in this, the Philistines stop up the wells that Abraham had dug. The men of Gerar didn't stop up the wells. Just They just came along and stole the wells. So the obstacles that we have here is not only he is envied by the Philistines, which led to uh, stopping up and the blocking up of the wells, but then he's envied by the men of Gerar that led to them stealing his wells. Isaac digs two wells. Both wells are stolen. But Isaac is a man of perseverance, as I said. He digs two wells. Those wells are stolen, so he goes and digs a third well. This third well is not stolen. It belongs to him. He takes it and lives by it. Last thing that you'll notice about Isaac as you get to the end of the chapter is there's a simple little phrase that says to him, says about him, that Isaac built an altar and pitched his tent, and there he dug a well. Just three simple things. He built an altar. He pitched his tent. He made a place to live. And he dug a well. He had a way to survive. When we read this, let's kind of go back a little bit now. It said that Isaac sowed, this is verse 12, and received in the same year an hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. If Isaac in this world could sow and receive an hundredfold, uh, what about the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you ever thought about that? Uh, in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 12, Jesus compares his death to a corn of wheat falling into the ground. Now, uh, I think I'll look out here and I see a bunch of city slickers today. Not a whole lot of farmers and planters here. Uh, what good does seed do sitting on the shelf? Does no good, right? Seed has to be taken, has to be planted into the ground. But now what happens to the seed when it's in the ground? The outer husk or the outer shell breaks. And that which is on the inside comes forth, grows out, produces a harvest. Uh, there's a breaking that is occurring. There's a, a if it were to happen to us, there would be a painfulness that occurs, a breaking that occurs of that outer shell. Uh, Paul says our outer, man, our, our outer man be crucified, our inner man is renewed day by day. The Lord Jesus Christ describes his death and his burial as the planting of a kernel of wheat into the ground. He says in John chapter 12 and verse 24, he says, um, he says, except the corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. If it sits on the shelf, it abides alone. There's nothing comes forth. However, he says, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. The thought that occurred to me on this is how often do you, do you speak with people about the impact and the implication of the death of Christ? How often do you talk to somebody about what the death of Christ actually accomplished? Well, what most people think is the death of Christ attempted to accomplish something for somebody. Jesus attempted to die, which he did. 
He attempted to offer salvation if you just accept it. The scripture says, if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. If Isaac can be blessed of God to receive an hundredfold, how much more the Lord Jesus Christ? I submit to you that every single person that Jesus Christ died for will be saved without the loss of one. I submit to you he's the greatest farmer ever been. I submit to you that when he died upon that cross, went into that grave, and came out victorious the third day, that he accomplished exactly what he set out to accomplish. And I submit to you that as Isaac and Abraham dwelt in their lands and dug wells to uh, supply their needs, from a spiritual standpoint, the greatest well that's ever been dug in our life is the finished work of Jesus Christ. That is a well that we can go to day in and day out, and it's always new every morning, and it always satisfies everything we need. But let's notice this here. It says here that he was envied of the Philistines. This is uh, chapter uh, 26, verse 14. He had possessions of flocks, possessions of herds, and great store of servants, and the Philistines envied him. And it goes on to say that for all the wells which his father's servants had digged in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines had stopped them and filled them with earth. So he was not only envied by the Philistines, but his father was also hated by the Philistines. And after his father's death, they stopped or filled the wells with dirt so that nobody else could use them. Isn't that kind of ignorant? You say, well, Philistines, they're not farmers. They don't need the wells. You don't need it, leave it alone. You don't want it, leave it alone. But isn't that just the human nature that we've got in America today? There's a big brouhaha about guns. A whole herd of people out here don't like guns. You don't like guns, don't own guns. No, I don't like guns and nobody else can own them either. Really? Here's another thing, though, that you need to notice about this. That as these Philistines travel through this land and they pass by these wells... Don't the Philistines need water too? Don't their animals need water too? Don't other people's animals need water? You will find, you will find that the workers of iniquity are always at work attempting to destroy the paths of the righteous. And they will attempt to destroy the paths of the righteous even to their own hurt and destruction. The Bible in the book of Proverbs, chapter 27, verse 4, says that wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? Somebody can hate you and somebody can not like you, but when somebody becomes envious of you, 
they develop bigger problems than the fact they just don't like you. There's another word that's closely related to envy, and that's the word jealousy. Y'all ever heard that word? Y'all ever had to deal with somebody who is a jealous person? Let me give you this verse in Song of Solomon, chapter 8 and verse 6. says that jealousy is cruel as the grave. Well, you know, the grave is a cruel person, isn't it? You know, the grave is actually non-racist. It doesn't care what color you are. It's going to take you. The grave is uh, non-gendered. It doesn't care what gender you are. Male or female, you're all going to go there. The grave has no age restriction. From the youngest to the oldest. They've all been there and they will still head there. Jealousy and envy when it is bubbling in the life of an individual is a dangerous, hurtful, and hateful thing. And here's Isaac. He's living in the land and he's living with amongst these uh, jealous people and he's living amongst these envious people. And the Bible said in verse 14 that the uh, they had stopped the wells that Abraham's servants had digged after the death of Abraham and filled them with earth. Pause to think for a moment. What has God blessed us with in this life? What has God blessed us, not just His people, but the world as a whole? What has He blessed us with in this life to make life a little better and easier lived? There's three things that God did when He created this world. He created work. He created the family. And He created worship. And all three of those things are under attack by the Philistines of this world. All three of those things, the Philistines have stopped up, thrown dirt in, attempted to take from us the benefit and blessing of those things. I mentioned last Sunday that some of the problems that God had spoken about the city of Sodom was their abundance of idleness. And I asked y'all, hadn't I heard somewhere that... Some people are trying to go to four-day work weeks. And what did I read in the paper Tuesday morning when I woke up? California, passing a law, go to four-day work weeks. 32-hour work weeks, anything over 32 hours is overtime. Sounds real good to the ignorant and unlearned, to the slothful and to the lazy, to get paid more to do nothing. But to those of us who actually learn how to count and read, that will be disastrous to our economy. you ever noticed how anybody who actually does work hard and achieves and succeeds is often seen as hateful and greedy? God said be fruitful and multiply. He didn't say sit down and go to your mailbox. Think about the family. You think about how the Philistines have thrown dirt into the family itself. The uh, definition of...
the family is constantly being uh, redefined on a daily basis. Uh, male and female distinctions are constantly being erased in America today, and children are seen as inconvenient and loud and noisy and dirty and a bothersome. And is that what God said? God outlined what the family was. God outlined who male and females were and what their roles and responsibility in life were. And God said himself that, lo, children are in heritage of the Lord. Blessed is the man that hath his quiver full. The third thing that God created was worship, or we may call it just the church in a general sense. Uh, was not the church deemed uh, non-essential under COVID? Walmart was okay. Home Depot was okay. As long as they operated at 50%, they would be okay. But churches were only allowed to have like 10 members. Really? The problem is not that the authorities deemed church uh, non-essential. The problem is that the churches allowed themselves to be deemed non-essential. If you now, two years later, are sitting at home, afraid to go to church, Stop praying to God right now. Stop praying that God would convict our senators and our leaders and our governors that they would turn their hearts to the Lord if your heart itself is not turned to God. Stop begging God to, to tell other people to make the church important if you yourself are not making the church important. You know, the Bible says in the Gospel of Matthew Jesus tells this parable that a certain man had two sons. And he said to both of these sons at separate times, go thou work in my vineyard. The one says, I go not, but repented and went. The second son says, I go, sir, but didn't go. And he said to the Pharisees, which of the twain did the will of the father? And they said, well, we reckon the one that actually went. Do you realize, do you realize that uh, if our secular work was done in the same way that our church work was done, we'd have been fired from our secular work long ago? You, you see, it's beneficial when folks do show up at church. Did y'all know it is beneficial? Oh, I'm, I'm with you in spirit. You know what? I've never had much success speaking, speaking to spirits. I always wanted a warm, fleshy body to look at. I, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'm not much to look at, but that's beside the point. If we ourselves aren't going to deem church necessary, what do we care what the world thinks? The world has filled up this idea of worship as non-essential. The world has also told us that doctrine is also not important. It doesn't really what you believe, just so long as you believe something. And yet Paul said uh, when he was speaking to Timothy that the importance of right, proper doctrine is seen in this statement. He said, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, 
and overthrow the faith of some have said that the resurrection is past already. Hymenaeus and Fletus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past, have overthrown the faith of some. It is important what you believe. Right principles lead to right practice. Wrong principles lead to wrong practice. Every time. So these Philistines that they weren't using the wells clogged the wells up. I, I got a little, little little idea about this. Think about these folks out here in the world having removed the distinction between males and females. People out here in the world having uh, denied the absolutes of what a male is and what a female is. Having demanded that equal means the same. Equal does not mean the same. Three plus one. And two plus two are equal. But they are not the same. If you think they're the same, I'll eat my three apples, you eat your one apple, and we'll both be full. Equal does not mean the same. Having allowed men to compete in women's sports, they have destroyed the woman's opportunity to succeed in that field. And having denied biblical principles for so long. These feminist gender benders have no idea which side of the story to stand on. Do we stand for the women? Do we stand for the trans? We don't know what we're supposed to do. They are just like the Sadducees and the Pharisees in Jesus' day when they came to Jesus and they said to Him, by what authority do you these things? And He said to them, well, let me ask you this. John the Baptist. What gives him his authority? And the Pharisees reason amongst themselves and says, well, if we say his authority comes from heaven, then he'll say, why don't you believe? If we say his authority just comes from men, the people are going to be mad because the people see him a prophet come from God. We can't take a stand, not because we don't know the answer, but we're afraid of the outcome on whichever stand we take. And Jesus, and they said to him, says, well, we don't know. And Jesus says, well, then I tell you no answer either. These Philistines had plugged these wells, had thrown things in these wells. Uh, says here also, uh, I believe it's uh, told to us that after the death of Abraham, they stopped up the wells. Have you ever seen a family fall apart after the father dies? There's an unknown quote that says, our families are falling apart because we buried the ones who were keeping them together. That's a reasonable quote. That's an honest observation. It's a dreadful reality, though. It's a dreadful reality. If your family falls apart because the mother died, or your family falls apart because the father died, then the wrong person was the focus of the family. The wrong person was in charge of the family. There's a difference between doing what is right because you have no other option 
and doing what is right because it's the right thing to do. There's a difference between doing what is right because you have no other option and doing what is right because it's the right thing to do. So, for example, you walk into a grocery store, you pay for your groceries because it's the right thing to do, right? Or you walk into a convenience store and you pay for your gas that you got or you pay for Coca-Cola you got out of the machine because it's the right thing to do. Or do you pay for it because there's a camera looking at you in the face, you're on film, or do you pay for it because there's some big ugly guy standing at the door going to break your arm when you try and walk out with something you stole? There's a difference between doing something that is right because you have no other choice. I have no other choice than to pay for this or that guy will break my arm. If he wasn't standing there, I might would steal this. And doing something that is right because it's the right thing to do. The wicked of this world, the infidels of this world are always sorry. They're always sorry they got caught. Not that they're sorry for who they are and what they did. So take this idea of the family, just for example. In uh, four times in the book of Ephesians, we're instructed on how a family ought to operate. Uh, first thing that we're told is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, Honor thy father and thy mother. Why are you to honor your father and your mother? You know what? If I didn't say anything, and man, if I if I talked my mom and dad like that, I'd be picking my teeth up off the floor. Well, so be it. You know that might have been the way it was back then. Are you supposed to honor your father and mother because you don't want them to spank you and slap you, or should you honor your father and mother because God said so? As a matter of fact, he says this is the first commandment with promise. So when you go back to Exodus chapter 20 and you read what those, 20, those 10 commandments are, this is the very first commandment that God gives where he says, Honor thy father and thy mother that thy days may be long upon the earth. It's a commandment with a promise. Uh, the next thing that the Paul tells us, Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, lest they be discouraged. This is how fathers are supposed to teach their families. This is how fathers are supposed to interact with their families. There's not to provoke their children under wrath. Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Ephesians 5 says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Honoring your parents because God commands it, right? Provoke not your children to wrath. Why? God commands it. Love your wives. Why? God commands it. Submit yourself unto your husbands. Why? God commands it. You're to do it because it's the right thing to do. Boy, all sorts of dirt and garbage been thrown in that well, hasn't it? If our fathers actually filled their place in proper teaching, how much better would our families be? Uh, <clears throat> here's a stronger one, though, for you. 
if wives would just be quiet and let their husbands lead, how much stronger would our families be? He doesn't need to be told everything he's doing is wrong. He knows about half of what he's doing ain't right. He knows he's not equipped to lead this family. He doesn't need you reminding him how dumb he is. TV and cartoons and movies show that enough. I mean, you just take marriage itself, how much junk has been thrown in that well by Hollywood. You know, what's the quickest way to the great romance? What's the quickest way to a great marriage? Well, have sex with everybody and the person person you find that you have the greatest sex with, marry that person. Problem. When you base a marriage on physical contact, what are you going to do when the physical contact stops? I mean, what are you going to do if there's an affliction or a disease that touches your spouse and you can't touch them? You still going to stay married? You're not having all this wonderful interaction that you were having before you got married that you based it on. Or it sure got quiet. Boy, that, that, that got quiet. We're trying to point out to the younger generation you're cheating yourself by jumping ahead of God's plan. God says that marriage is honorable and all Honorable and all, and the bed undefiled. Marriage and then the bed. Hollywood says if you don't get the bed right, you can't get in the rest of it right. The Bible says if you don't get God right, none of the rest of it matters. The Philistines undid the work of Abraham after he died. And that's going to happen probably to most of us in here. We're going to try to establish something in life. And the world is going to come behind us and tear it down. Solomon said that in Ecclesiastes. He says, of all the things that I accomplish, all the things that I build, you know, what does that matter if the man that comes after me is a fool? And in a little bit of that, he was a little prophetic in that. His son Rehoboam that came after him near about tore the kingdom down. Everything that he had lived and worked to build Rehoboam comes behind him and tears it down. And isn't that just kind of what happens in the world around us here? Um, constantly standing in judgment of the former generation. Constantly standing in judgment of those who went before us. It is true. It is true that leaders in the past may have had some strange practices based on ignorance. But those things that we uh, state that we believe should not be changed because of the whim of the people. They should be changed on the basis of the light of new evidence. For example, if you were told growing up that Jesus has just died to try and save everybody, I would say that is incorrect. I would say that Jesus never tried to do anything. Jesus did what he did. And Jesus accomplished what he accomplished. 
We sang the hymn this morning, number four in the blue hymnal, It is Finished. That, that's not just a hymnal. That's not just words somebody came up with. That's John 19, verse 30, when Jesus declared on the cross in a loud voice, It is finished. E.D. Finished. Done. He didn't cry out to His church and say, Finish the task. He said, It's finished. It is done. So that's the next thing that you want to look at here. Uh, the Philistines came and they stopped up the wells that uh, Abraham had dug. Notice what it says here. Uh, Genesis 26, verse 17. Isaac departed thence and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac digged again the wells of water which they had digged in the days of Abraham his father. For the Philistines had stopped them after the death of Abraham, and he called their names after the names by which his father had called them. Isaac comes into the land. He sees these wells that have been stopped up with dirt and mud, sticks and stones. What does he do? He goes back and he redigs the wells that the Philistines have stopped up. And oftentimes that is indeed the job of the gospel minister to look out into uh, the society that is around them and see these wells that God has provided, that the world has stopped up, say we got to redig these wells. Bring this back out. Rediscover God's plan for the family, God's plan for work, God's plan for the church, and God's plan for your life. It wasn't until Saul of Tarsus was struck down on the Damascus Road that he then looked to the Lord and said, what would thou have me to do? Prior to that time, he knew exactly what he wanted to do. He had his own plan. He had his own scheme. He had it all figured out himself. But when God came along, Paul said, wait, we got to uh, reconsider this. And the idea is not what I want to do. The idea is what would thou have me to do? And Isaac Redigged these wells, and it says that he called them by their names after the names which his father had called them. Uh, Matthew Henry writes on this. He said it is good to make use of the discoveries of former ages that have been clouded by corruptions of later times. I would add to this that every generation is responsible for discovering for themselves. God and His purpose and His plan. And the way that you do that is by digging in God's Word. Now, <clears throat> keep in mind that when we're talking about these wells in Isaac's day, we're not just talking about a little three-foot circle where you let a bucket down and get some water and come back up which it can be that. That's not necessarily the wells we're talking about here. It is true that when Jesus sat on Jacob's well, it was some sort of circular, small structure. But in Rebecca's day, you ever read that she went down into the well? We're talking about a well that in some cases are twelve and a half feet in diameter. And 44 and a half feet deep. And the bottom portion of the well, if it was stone, it was carved in stone, had steps carved in there so you could walk down in there, get your water pot, and walk back out. 
44 and a half feet is equivalent to a three-story building. There's about 12 to 14 feet per story. So get your water pot. And I'm not, I'm not talking about a little bitty tiny cup like this. I'm talking about a great big huge water pot. Because if you got to go somewhere to get it and bring it back, you're not bringing back a cup. You're bringing back something that's rather large and rather heavy. And she's walking down in this thing and coming back up. Friends, there's a reason that a lot of people don't study the Bible any more than they do. It's hard work. It's not easy. It's just not. When Isaac called the wells by the names that his father had given, I noticed within that that Isaac is not saying, well, that was my dad's day. I've got better ideas. I've got different things. No. For example, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 6, in the 16th verse, in Jeremiah, chapter 6, in verse 16, it says, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. What are we supposed to do as a congregation? Are we supposed to meet before God and say, you know, God, this is our idea and we just want you to bless it? No. We're to come before God, search out His Word, and what His Word says that we're supposed to do. I read this week a conversation that a couple ladies had had, and they got to talking about church, and an older lady said, you know, I think in America today, denominations are a luxury. Never thought of it that way. Never really had thought of it that way, that churches and denominations in America are a luxury. And they are. There's no threat of persecution to our churches right now. You get a wild, crazy idea that you want to be the, the first Italian baboon congregation, fine. You go down here to the end of the street and you can rent out a, a vacated building and throw up a sign, and in a week, there you are. Try that in China. Try that in Russia. Try that in Africa and in the Philippines where some of our brethren have been to. You can't just stand on the street corner declaring who you are. And people, I think, with, with the luxury that we have, have been allowed to listen to people's opinions so long that we've reverted back to the days when Jesus said for commandments they teach, or, the, or for doctrines they teach the commandments of men. And I've come, I've come across some people that come across the most harebrained ideas I've ever heard in my life. And I'm thinking, do you even know how to read? That's not even what the text says. Text doesn't even contain those words that are coming out of your mouth. And I agree with what Sonny Powell says. There's so many people who are ready to tell you what the Bible says, but they have no idea what the Bible means. The first step in understanding the Bible is to just simply believe what it says. But the first step in believing what it says is to read what it says. Periods are in there for a reason. Commas are in there for a reason. 
Had a conversation here just the other day with a young man. Uh, Jesus says to the thief on the cross, y'all, y'all follow me on this? Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Y'all know that text, right? That tells me that when Jesus died and the thief died, they both went to heaven that day. But the man I'm talking to believes in some, a doctrine called soul sleep. That when you die, your body and your soul sleep in the ground until the resurrection, and then you're awakened. I said, well, what about this text right here? It says, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Well, in the original Greek, there were no, uh, there were no punctuation marks in the original Greek. So that comma in front of the word today means to be moved after today. And it means I tell you today, comma. At some point, you shall be with me in paradise. Evidently, the, the thief on the cross was so dumb, he didn't realize Jesus was saying this today. I think he thought he was saying it next Tuesday. I don't know. I said, okay, well, I have a problem with that. You want to move that comma? That's fine. There's another comma over here in the Gospel of Luke that says when Jesus was being led to this hill, there were led with him also other malefactors. There were also, comma, other malefactors, or comma, other, excuse me, let me get this right. Whoo! About to make a mess here. There were led with him other malefactors. The comma, I said, is in the wrong place. Let's just move that comma and say we moved other malefactors. Well, you can't do that. I know that my Lord is holy. You do not know your Lord is holy. And he looked at me. I said, the only way you know your Lord is holy by what the Bible tells you. Aristotle's not telling you the Lord is holy. Plato is not telling you the Lord is holy. Socrates is not talking about the Holy Lord. The only way that you know that Jesus Christ is holy, harmless, sinless, undefiled, and separate from sinners is what you read in this book. You start moving the commas, changing the periods, changing the exclamation points, you change entire doctrine. So you start moving commas, I'm going to start moving commas. And you see what kind of ruckus we get here? The commas belong where they are. But that's the problem, that's the kind of the problem you're dealing with in talking to people. They don't even know how to read. And when they come across it, they say, well, that, that doesn't fit me, so there must be something wrong with that text because it doesn't agree with me. No, there's something wrong with you. Paul did not say, conform the Word to your life. He said in Romans 12, he said, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind by God's Word. That's what, that's what Isaac does here. Isaac goes back and he digs up what was there in the past. Calls the wells by his father's name. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 11. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 11 says, There is a generation that curseth their father and doth not bless their mother. There is a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed. From their filthiness. Uh, I told you about the young girl that tried to glue her hand to the basketball court last week in protest of animal rights. Another poor, misled child has done that again. She went out and chained herself to the basketball goal at a, bas- at a basketball game yesterday. They are angry that we mistreat animals by killing them and eating them. And yet they're not washed from their own filthiness of sodomy, sin, and abortion. 
They want to yell at the rest of us. The Bible is as true today as it's ever been. He goes on to say there is a generation, verse 13, oh, how lofty are their eyes and their eyelids are lifted up. There is a generation whose teeth are swords and their jaw teeth are knives to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among men. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 20 says, Whoso curseth his father or his mother, his lamp shall be put out in obscure darkness. Proverbs 20, 20 says, Whosoever curseth his father and mother, his lamp shall be put out in obscure of darkness. And I wonder, this may explain why so many today make decisions that are completely unreasonable and why so many people just seem to be wandering aimlessly in the dark. They cut themselves off from everything they've ever been. They cut themselves off from everything that God established to lead and guide and direct them. Because what happens here, oh, here's another one here. Think about this in uh, Psalm 55, verse 19. Psalm 55, verse 19 says that the wicked have no changes. Ultimately, he's, he is talking about spiritual changes. The wicked in this life have no spiritual changes. They don't change themselves under righteousness. It takes God to change them. If you ever noticed that how the Bible says that the wicked have no changes, yet they themselves are constantly trying to change everything else. Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 23 says that they changed the glory of God into the image of man. Romans one twenty five says that they changed the truth of God into a lie. The wicked don't have any true significant spiritual changes, but what are they constantly trying to do? Change everything else. And I'm going to submit to you. Let's just contemplate and think about this. This is something worth thinking about. Maybe I don't have all the nails nailed down in the floor right. But when a young couple gets married and she says, I know he's this, but I will. What? I will change him. You set yourself up for trouble. He looks at her. says, oh, well, you know, she's kind of rough around the edges, but. I'll change her. Won't happen, will it? Anybody here been married longer than 15 years? You know that's true. You know, I know what I'm talking about. There's only one source of change in this world. God Almighty. You can change your mind all you want. You can develop a new habit Try to develop a new habit all you want. You can attempt to exercise. You can attempt to lose weight. You can attempt to read the Bible all you want. But the only thing that makes a true, real, significant change in your life is the power of God. Isaac called these wells by his father's name. No sense in changing. I'd like you to notice here. Gracious Almighty, my time is near about run out. But we'd like to notice, um, we'll just kind of sweep through the last few bits of this. Verse 20, uh, the herdmen of Gerar did strive with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, the water is ours. Well, let me, uh, verse 19, I'm missing verse 19. Uh, in verse 18, they redug the old wells. In verse 19, 
It says Isaac's servants digged in the valley and found there a well of springing water. So now we got new wells. So what's a little lesson here? Learn from the past, lead to the future. Learn from the past, lead to the future. I'm not sure how well Abraham's servants knew how to dig wells. One good way to learn is to go back and see the way Abraham did it, right? That's not high-minded. That's, that's sort of easy right there. What happens here? So Isaac's servants now dig in the valley. They found there a well of springing water. And the herdmen of Gerar did strive with Isaac's herdmen, saying, The water is ours! Greedy, selfish people. And he called the name of the well Essek, because they strove with him. If you have a center column reference Bible, the term Essek there means contention. Verse 21, and they digged another well and strove for that also. And he called the name of it Sitna. If you have a center column reference Bible, the term Sitna means hatred. Oh boy, we're just, we're just rolling right along here, aren't we? The more you work, the harder it gets. Verse 22, and he removed from thence and digged another well, and for that they strove not. Hallelujah. And he called the name of it Rehoboth. And he said, for now the Lord hath made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. And the term Rehoboth means, there you go, room enough. You say, didn't Isaac have right to the wells he dug? He did. I'll grant you that. His father had some wells stolen from him a few chapters before this, and he said to Abimelech, buddy, you better control your servants because they stole my well and they took it violently. And Abimelech said, okay, you can have it back. Here, Isaac comes along. He digs some wells. He's in a fight for him. Why is it? Is Isaac a loser? No. Isaac's probably a lover, not a fighter. Because Isaac also understands that when you get out here in this wicked world and you get people with envy and greed against you, there's no stopping what they will do to get what they want. That's just, folks, that's just real. We're going to fight over this well? Maybe. We'll fight over the next well? Maybe. I got to thinking about that when I, when I, I got to thinking about that reading this and I thought, it is okay to defend yourself. It is okay to defend things that rightfully belong to you. But are you going to go out in this world and are you going to fight everybody who's ever offended you and hurt you? You're going to go out here and fight everybody and everything that's ever hurt you or offended you? Because I will encourage you to know this, that God sees what is happening to you. God sees what is occurring to you. God hears what you say to Him. The devil also hears what you say out loud. And if the devil notices that you're the type that you want to fight everybody and everything for everything, he'll make sure your days are filled with conflict and violence. And he'll make sure that you have no end to the swinging of the fist and the shooting of the gun. I promise you that. He had to dig three wells by the time he got one that made it. But you know what? If you dig a third well and it's bountiful, what does it matter? now the Lord hath made room for us. And he went up from thence to Beersheba, 
There's more to that name we may get to later. And the Lord appeared unto him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, thy father. Fear not, for I am with thee. And will bless thee and multiply thy seed for my servant Abraham's sake. And here we go. This is the last point we'll make. And he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants digged a well. He digged again. He went on. He was a man of great perseverance. A man of great blessing. A man of great understanding. That regardless of what the world takes from us, they cannot take God. See, when it says here that they found a well springing up, a springing water, it's, it's other places in this text. When that woman got to that, that well at John chapter 4, and she sees Jesus sitting there on the ledge, she has no idea what great change is fixing to happen in her life. You may wander through this life seeking something to sustain you. I assure you, the fame and popularity and the enticements of this world will never completely satisfy what you need. I used to love to play sports. Now I like to watch them. There's a few folk in here I know used to love to climb trees. Brother Doug, you want to go out back and climb some of these sycamores out back when we get done with church today? A little old for that. Me. I don't know about him, but we're a little past that age. I tried jumping on the trampoline with children one time here a while back and realized I'm not 18 anymore. Jerry went rock climbing with his kids this week down at the La High Point place down here. Did you enjoy that? For the time being, until he fell, till I fell, you know, you wake up the next morning, you feel like you've been run over. I don't recover quite as quickly as I used to. Things of life will leave you in a hurry. I had no intention of getting this old this quick. It's unfair. But there's one thing that never gets old. There's one thing that's never unrefreshing. There's one thing that's never stable. The presence of God in your life. This is a pretty good place here once in a while. And it's a really decent place to dig a well and pitch a tent and dwell here in this church. You might want to try it sometime. You might find you just might want.